O Lord God, of all authority, all dominion, all sovereign power, your ways, your wisdom are perfect. They're good and they're holy. You are to be praised and you are worthy of all of our worship this morning and forevermore. Thank you, Lord, for our world so often seems to be spinning out of control. Our authorities given to us seem only to have self-interest and foolish so often. Our own hearts are scattered with emotion and fear and longing to control what is in our world. Thank you. Father, thank you for controlling everything. Having all authority. Ordering every circumstance in thought, in word, in choice of every creature in all of your cosmos by your divine and wise authority. We confess that we either long to control our world and those around us too much or we're lazy and apathetic in the areas that you've called us to have authority in. And so help us, Lord. Help us to trust your authority and to faithfully take up the authority which you have given to us that we might be equipped to fulfill the callings that you have given each and every one of us. Grant us, I pray, grace that we might rest in your authority and faith that we might live under your authority with great joy and hope and not with obstinance. Pray, Father, that we will see the deliverance that is only in Jesus Christ and that we will rest in his name and in his authority alone. And I pray, Father, that your word will accomplish all of these things this morning as it goes forth by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. When the Waters family takes a trip, we, uh, we typically pack the car and then we pull out of the garage and hit the garage door button, at least when I'm driving. And then um, I look in the rearview mirror and I'm watching the garage door go down and I make sure that it's down because I don't want to leave for a trip and the garage door be up the whole time thinking that it was supposed to be down. All of us have maybe done that. But right after that scenario then um, typically I will put the car in park and I'll ask my family to pray. Because um, what we have found as the Waters family is that um, God is going to work um, and it's not just going to be when we get there. But the Lord has a way to mold and shape and develop our character even in the car. Um, On the way, en route, so often we get hung up in the idea that um, the destination is so important that we forget that God may be trying to do just as much in the trip to where we're going than he wants to do actually when we get there. And so that's what we have before us this morning. We have before us this morning the journey that Moses has to take from Midian to Egypt. And the Lord um, doesn't just 
allow us to skip over that section, but instead the Lord shows us that all along the way, He is, the Lord is, cramming all kinds of lessons into Moses' life, even as he journeys. And so I want to encourage you this morning that we should not assume that any moment or any circumstance or any drive to work should be some careless, thoughtless event. But instead, could it be that the Lord wants to help us, wants to teach us, wants to develop and encourage us in faithful ways, even in these places in our lives that we may think are just kind of, I'm just driving to work. But it may be that the Lord is stuffing it full of opportunity for faith and blessing to be in your life, and yet we just assume it's ours. So this morning I want to, us to look at this passage and I want us to consider what God may be teaching Moses as he travels from Midian to Egypt. And what we'll find as we look at this, I hope, is that what the Lord is trying to teach Moses and what the Lord's trying to prayerfully seek to teach us this morning is a lesson on authority. Authority. Doesn't sound right, does it? Of all things, uh, Moses is getting ready to step um, into the land that is most prosperous, most um, renowned, most beautiful, most glorious of any place on the planet. He's getting ready to step into Egypt itself with an incredible power and prestige. And what God is wanting to teach Moses on the way there from Midian, this little side area that's not really very valuable at all, into this, this capital of the world, this New York City, if you will, of the world of that day, what is... God want to teach Moses as he's on en route to this place. He's wanting to teach him about authority and the importance and value of authority. And so this morning we're going to be looking at um, this authority and these lessons on authority that the Lord's teaching Moses as he's going to Egypt. And I want us to see it in, the, in four legs, if you will, of the journey, four, four areas that we have um, in our passage this morning um, as Moses is being taught about authority along the way. We're looking at verses 18 through 31. This morning I want us to divide it up into four different sections, um, each concerning something that the Lord's teaching Moses about authority. The first is, point number one, is authority respected. Authority respected, verses 18 through 20. Authority respected. Point number two, authority predicted. Authority predicted. Verses 21 through 23. Point number three, authority dismissed. Authority dismissed. Verses 24 through 26. And then point number four, authority affirmed. Authority affirmed. Verses 27 through 31. Authority respected. Authority predicted. Authority dismissed. And authority affirmed. Let's look first at authority respected. Notice that Moses is now, we've moved from Moses being on the side of this mountain with the angel of the Lord speaking to him. And the angel of the Lord told Moses that he was to go back to Egypt and to deliver God's people. Moses pushed back on that and said, I don't want to do this. There's all kinds of reasons why I shouldn't do this. And with every excuse, the Lord revealed himself and explained to him, you're, you're going to go anyway because I'm going to be with you. And so now now Moses has the authoritative word of God from the angel of the Lord, speaking from this burning bush, 
that he is to go back to Egypt and do what God has called him to do. The I am God, the God who is over and in all things. And yet, what we find is that the first thing Moses does is he respects the authority that God has placed in his life. In other words, we find in verses 18 through 20, what does Moses do? Does he leave the sheep on the side of the mountain where the burning bush was and make a beeline straight from the burning bush to Egypt? No. Instead, he goes back to the authority in his life. Verse 18, at least humanly speaking, his calling was, we see that he goes back to Jethro. Verse 18 says, Moses went back to Jethro. Jethro was his father-in-law, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And Moses, oh, Jethro wasn't just Moses' father-in-law, but he was also his boss. If you remember, he was, a, he was the, the shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. And so he had Jethro's sheep. And instead of making a beeline straight from the burning bush into Egypt, Moses instead decided to, out of respect, and to honor the authority that was in his life, in this case, his father-in-law, Jethro, he comes back and asks, and he says, please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. This is not exactly, he could have gone through all the scenario of the burning bush scenario, but most um, say that the reason he, this is so, there could have been other words that he said, but basically he summed it up in this regard, is that Moses still had a heart for the people that were the Hebrews in Egypt. And his great concern was, um, what was are they still alive? In other words, um, are, are they still doing what they were doing when I left? And that is under the burden and the difficulty of their lives that Egypt was placing them under. And so he was showing this concern to Jethro that he had concern for his people that were back in Egypt. And as he goes back to Jethro and he asks him for permission to go, what we find is that God's calling in Moses' life did not allow Moses to uh, disregard the other authorities that God himself had placed in his life. So in this case, we have no reason to believe at this point, and there's some debate back and forth, but we have no reason to believe in this, at this point that Jethro was a, an I am God-fearing man. He was a high priest in Midian. That doesn't mean that he was a follower of the Old Testament God of the Bible. He very well could have had all kinds of different deities and other things. There's no reason to believe that he had an in or an understanding of what God would want him to do. It wasn't um, a case where he had some spiritual insight that he understood here. But instead, even with that, Moses went back to Jethro and understood that the authority that Jethro had in his life, both as, in his, as a father-in-law but also as a boss, were, both, or were God-ordained authorities. God-ordained authorities that God had called him to be under and to be subjected to. And so he goes back. Too many of us believe that God has called us to do something, and that very reason gives us every reason to just disregard all the other things that are in our life, to treat our boss in a way that's unbecoming of the Lord, or to disregard even our marriage or those that are in our families. We're supposed to treat them um, with disrespect because now God's called me to do this very thing. No, what we find here is that Moses understood that the authority that, he, that was given to Jethro as his father-in-law and as his boss was an authority he needed to submit to, even though God, from the bush, had called him to Egypt. He comes back and respects this particular authority in his life. 
Notice that God speaks as well in verse 19 concerning this authority that's respected. In verse 19 it says, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. It's interesting that the Lord would say that. It's almost like the, Lord's, um, the Lord um, wants Moses to know that he's concerned about his safety. Well, when we get Moses into Egypt, we realize the Lord isn't too concerned about his safety at all. Moses is in, in some pretty amazing and very, very difficult circumstances. What seems to be the case here is that the Lord is letting Moses know that the people that were seeking his life when he left 40 years earlier, all of them have died. What's that an indicator of? Well, that's an indicator that God has already begun working in Egypt. And that when Moses goes to Egypt, that he already has the Lord as his forerunner. That the Lord's authority is already beginning to work and demonstrate himself as a God of authority. Even before he gets there, God is already telling him, listen, he wasn't saying something to Moses in way of trying to say, listen, it's a safe place, go ahead and go. No, what he was saying by what he's saying in verse 19, that all the men who were seeking your life are dead, what the Lord was saying is that I've already begun paving the road, and you can go knowing that I'm going ahead of you, and I'm preparing the road as you go. Then we find out also in verse 20, so Moses took two things. He took his family, and he took his God. Notice it says in verse 20, So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The idea that he took his family um, is an indicator that Moses was committing all that he was to this. He wasn't going to run up to Moses and do this thing and then get back to his family a little later on. But no, he loaded his entire family his loved ones, all that he had, um, and he took them with him. It says, he, it says in verse uh, 20 that he took his wife and his sons that he had with them and ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt with his family. The idea there is one of permanence. Moses knew that when he went, he was there for good until God called him away. He wasn't there just to visit. He wasn't there just to do a job. But he was there instead with this, per- this idea of permanence of being able to go with his family and reside there. So his wife and his children were seeing all these amazing things that were taking place. They didn't have to hear it secondhand as he gets into Egypt. Notice as well that this common, ordinary, everyday stick that was a shepherd's staff that was Moses's and called Moses's in chapter 4 earlier is now all of a sudden called something different. It's called the staff of God. It is an indicator here of God's authority in Moses' life as well as God's power. And so the last thing the Lord tells Moses right before he leaves that mountain in front of the burning bush in verse 17, he says, Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And so Moses is obeying. He's respecting this authority that God has given to him. And he takes up this staff, which is the staff of God, in his hand, and he heads to Egypt. So... What we have now is we have Egypt. We have Moses not just uh, leaving the place of the burning bush on the side of that mountain near Horeb, but now he's come to Midian. He's talked to his father-in-law. He's gotten permission to go. He's taken his family and a staff in his hand, knowing that God has paved the way and that those who are looking for his life has already, have already died, and now he's on the way. And so what we see is that now Moses moves to the second leg of his journey, and it is that the Lord reveals to him more than likely on the way as he begins his journey in verses 21 through 23, this authority that God is is going to be, he's telling Moses to prepare for what is to come. 
And he's explaining to him what's going to take place. And so this is the authority predicted. Point number two, the authority predicted. Verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What we see is this power and authority that God has. He is telling Moses that he's going to demonstrate this authority through these miracles and these signs. This is the first indication, a clear indication that we have that these signs are going to be done before Pharaoh. Everywhere earlier, these signs were to be done before just God's people. Now, we all think of these signs only being done in front of Pharaoh because that's what we read in the book of Egypt or in, in, later in the book of Exodus as what takes place. But these signs, when they were first given to Moses earlier in chapter 4, the indication is that he's going to do those primarily before the elders of Israel so that they would believe. But here, God's saying, you're not only going to do these things before the elders of Israel, but I want you to do them according to verse 21. He said, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all these miracles that I have put in your power. And then he goes on and he speaks to Moses and says, but... I will harden his heart, speaking of Pharaoh's, so that he will not let the people go. What we find here is this theme of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is a major theme in the book of Exodus. It takes up a lot of space in the way of people trying to explain it. It occurs no less than 20 times in the book of Exodus is this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Ten times it's spoken of God explicitly hardening Pharaoh's heart. Another ten times speaks of Pharaoh hardening is his own heart. This is a very, very difficult text. Many people that speak of this or speak of this book try to mention or try to reconcile this idea of God's absolute and inevitable authority and sovereignty over all created things. This is the distinction that God seems to be making here in verses 20 and 21. God's saying, I want you to do all these miracles. The miracles, for example, that had to do with a, a staff turning into a snake or a hand turning to leprous or water turning to blood. What the Lord's saying is that I have authority over all inanimate objects, all stuff on earth God says I have authority over. But then the Lord takes it one step further and says, not only do I have authority over all inanimate objects, but I have authority over every man's heart. Now you're pushing it, Lord. I mean, it's okay for you to be sovereign over everything in the world, but not my heart, because that's mine. And I want to have authority over that. But know what the Lord says is that he has authority not only over inanimate objects like staffs and hands and, and water, but he also has authority over man's heart. And he says specifically that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It says later in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, people who don't like this absolute, inevitable, complete, sovereign authority that God has over not only things on the earth, but also men's hearts, they like to emphasize the fact that Moses says in, in several places, or it says in Exodus in several places, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And some people like that better. See, right there it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You can go there if you want to, and that's perfectly fine. I don't believe the passage is, is not, I, I think it's correct there. But note this, the first occurrence of Pharaoh's heart being hardened is here, and it's predictive. 
In other words, before Pharaoh ever did anything, before Pharaoh ever knew that he was going to harden his heart or know what he was going to be hardening his heart against, what did God say before anything ever happened? God says, oh, by the way, know this, and notice what the text says. It says in verse 21, I will harden his heart. It's hard to get around that. You can't, you can't make the text say something other than what it says. And that is this. Is Pharaoh responsible for his heart being hardened? Yes. To the point that we can say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He willingly did it, yes. But who was sovereignly with all authority in heaven and earth doing that hardening that Pharaoh was responsible for? God was. God was the one hardening the heart. And he has all authority in heaven and earth. And he has authority over all the things that you have. And he has authority over your heart and your life. In other words, God can tell you to do whatever he wants you to do. And your response to that should be, yes, Lord. That's what the Lord says. He is Lord. That isn't an empty phrase or term. He is sovereign, absolutely. And he gives us a heart that is under his control. And we're thankful. We're so thankful that he is not only an authority and sovereign over inanimate objects, but he's sovereign and sovereign and has authority over hearts of men and women. Why do we pray? If we don't believe, people say, well, you, why pray then? No, I, I say, why would you pray for your loved one to come to Christ if you don't believe that God can do it? <laughs> it stop praying if you believe that the, the heart of man is in his own authority. Don't, you, you, you need to stop praying. No, you pray because you believe that the heart of man is in God's authority. That he has authority to move and to woo and to break and to bring and to draw near men and women. So we pray because God's the one who has authority over men's hearts. Now, the question is this. Why would God treat Pharaoh and Egypt so harshly and yet treat his people with such grace and kindness? Why? Why would the Lord do this? Well, he speaks of this as he uh, predicts his authority in verses 21 through 23. So look with me in verse 22. He says, he says after he speaks of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, he says, Then you will say to Pharaoh, you will tell Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, and, he, and Moses is to tell Pharaoh, this piece of information that is vital for Pharaoh to understand. And it is this. Israel, this is God speaking, Israel is my firstborn son. He's saying, in this regard, he's saying, this, this nation, Israel, is my treasured possession. This nation, Israel, is my child. I'm treating this nation as if this, this, this nation was my very flesh and blood, my own son. I'm going to treat Israel that way, in this unique way, in this way that it's not speaking of here. He's not, he's not saying in verse 22, Israel's my firstborn son. Like, like he's, the, he's the first one out of all the sons that I have. No, he's speaking here of preeminence. He's speaking here not of chronological birth order, but instead of, of a committed love that, that Israel has a, a special, unique place in God's eyes. 
And it's because of the covenant that God made with Israel to say, you are mine. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And in that way, the Lord's saying, this one is like my firstborn son. Like the one who's most precious to me. Then he goes on and he says in verse 23, And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me or worship me. In other words, the Lord's saying, I want my son to be near me. I want my son to be serving me, to be worshiping me, to be doing what he was created to do. And that's what Moses is supposed to tell Pharaoh that God said. This is my firstborn son. It's interesting because Pharaoh, if you read, the, if you read or understand anything of the Egyptian religion, Pharaoh was the son of all the gods. He was the one that was supposed to be the elite, the superior, the unique one. The Pharaoh was the one. That's why they built big pyramids for these guys. And that's why they put gold in their tombs. And that's why they made them look so fascinating when they died. It was because these were people that they understood, the Egyptians understood, as being the son of all the gods. And what is Pharaoh, what is, what is Moses supposed to be telling Pharaoh? No, no, you're not. <laughs> but Israel is. These slaves that you have are my son, the son of God. And the Lord says, I want them to worship me. I want them to serve me. Later, in Israel's amazing rebellion, in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God, and he says this, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, meaning he was, God was speaking against their rebellion, I do remember him still. Notice this. Therefore my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. The Lord says, this, may, this one may rebel, this one may be acting in ways that's unbecoming of, the, of a son of the very God that, that he, is, he, is, he is a son to, but yet he is still my son. And he'll never not be my son. He'll always be one that I treasure and that is precious. This is exactly the phrase and the word, then, that in the New Testament Paul picks up on, and he's using this particular text to speak of, Jesus Christ as being the Son of God, not in the sense that Jesus Christ was the chronologically the first among all the different people that God created, but instead that Jesus was the firstborn in that he was preeminent. He was distinguished. He's renowned. He's the first. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created for, through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You see how that word firstborn, Paul is lifting it from this passage and using it in an understanding of, in Christ, we are all God's sons. We're the children of God. When, we're, when we trust in this one who is the firstborn of Colossians 1.15. In Hebrews, the Hebrew author or preacher of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter 1. Long ago, 
at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that holds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. You hear the superiority? Now listen. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What is the Hebrew preacher doing there? He's quoting Psalms. And when he uses this phrase, son, he's speaking of Israel. And now the Hebrew author, the Hebrew preacher, is preaching this this sermon in Hebrews chapter 1, and he mentions the son, and he's speaking now not of Israel, but of Christ and all those who are in Christ. Again, Hebrews chapter 1, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. You see the preeminence? When he brings his firstborn into the world, that is Jesus Christ, and he's saying, let all the angels worship him. That he's not equal with the angels, but he's preeminent, superior. God has a treasured place for his people. And he calls this, as, as, as Moses is to tell Pharaoh, he's to let Pharaoh know that God's people are preeminent. They have a special treasured place in God's heart. Why? Because God has set his love on them. God has made a covenant with them. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth that God has, he's going to work that authority to accomplish his love in the lives and hearts of his people. So this text is very clear that Israel and Egypt are distinct. And what we're going to find is that that word distinct is going to happen over and over again in the the plagues. Because all these plagues, I don't know if you've ever seen this before or not, but all these plagues that take place in Egypt, there's usually this long ten verses of what the horror that's being rained down on Egypt in this particular, each individual plague. And then there's this one liner right after it and says, and none of this happened in the, in, in, in the place where the Hebrews were. And then it says, to, so, that, so that they would know that there's a distinction between Egypt and God's people. Why is there a distinction? Because God set his love on them and they are his son. He loves them uniquely and in a way that's preeminent. He even mentions, alludes to these plagues and the distinction between Egypt and Israel. In verse 23, notice, And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, this is God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, I will kill your firstborn son. What's the, what's the plague that broke the camel's back? What's the final plague that ultimately ushered in the fact where God's people were sent out in Passover? It was when the cries of all the mothers in Egypt on that dreaded night when the angel of death killed all the firstborn and even Pharaoh's firstborn. So it's a precursor of God's amazing love for his people. And in contrast, the disregard and the horror 
that are for all those who are not in Christ, brothers and sisters. The point is this. God has predicted that his authority will be preeminent over all the earth. We may live in ways that might be contrary to that in the way we make decisions and how we act in our daily lives, but brothers and sisters, God has authority over all of creation and over men's hearts. Abraham Kuyper once said in his sermon, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every square inch in all the cosmos is his, and he has authority to do what he will with it. God's authority is predicted. Thirdly, God's authority is dismissed, is dismissed. Continuing on this journey, we see in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way to Egypt, obviously. A lodging place on the way. Verse 24. The Lord met him, meaning Moses, and sought to put him to death. Now, I don't know how many times you've read through Exodus and you got to this particular part, but it, it seems like an abrupt interruption. It's like what? Everything seemed to be going well. Life was good, things were tracking along, God was going to send Moses, God's promised all these things, everything's good. And now here in verse 24, all of a sudden, God wants to kill Moses out of nowhere. Just let you know how quick things can change, especially with our hard, disobedient, obstinate hearts so often. What's happening in this passage? Um, the debates and the discussions are myriad. I'll let you read all the different books if you want to. But I'm going to land in the spot where I believe is most faithful, most consistent with the majority of the commentators and the understanding of this passage. And then I'll let you read all the different variances and variables of this particular passage later. But here we're talking about God's authority being dismissed. And specifically, Moses dismissing the authority that he had as a father to circumcise his son. It says here in verse 24, At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, meaning Moses, and sought to put him to death. Verse 25, Then Zipporah, which is Moses' wife, she somehow, and we don't have any idea from the text, why she connected um, Moses' in, incapacitated. He, he, some say he was having possibly something like a seizure, or he was, he was in some way so sick that he was completely incapacitated, unable to do anything. Zipporah sees her husband in this shape at this lodge that they're in, and then connects in her head that the reason he is in the shape he's in in way of his sickness is because he was disobedient to circumcise their son. Now, I, we have no idea why that's connected there, but we see that that was right, because once she does this, then Moses gets better. But for some reason, she has the ability to be able to discern that the reason that Moses was in this um, incapacitated state, that he was about to die, was because of her son not being circumcised. Now, the reason, the idea, the understanding here is this, is that the Lord just declared in the previous verses that this is my son that I've made a covenant with, that they are, that God's people are my people. These are the ones that I'm going to deliver. Why? Because God has set his love on them and he's given them a covenant. Now, what's the sign of that covenant? The sign of the covenant is circumcision. 
And so what is basically understood here is this, is that, that Moses, his responsibility was to go into Egypt and tell God's people, you're God's people, you're prized, and it's because of God's covenant that he set upon you and he loves you and he cares for you, and yet he will be going into Egypt without his son bearing the very sign that he's supposed to bear to indicate and to evidence the faith of this I am God, the Lord. Does that make sense? And so he, he basically shuts Moses down en route. He stops him in his tracks. Many of us had testimonies of this where we were just determined we were going to go after or do something, whether it be a business venture or something else, and we were just determined to go after it, and the Lord incapacitated us. He still does this today. Where in His grace and mercy, He absolutely stops us in our tracks and puts us on our back so that we can think through this instead of being foolish in our decisions that we make. But here, that's exactly what happens. And it says, Zippor, verse 25, Zippor took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, touched Moses' feet with it. Basically, the understanding there is that she threw it at him in disgust because he was dismissing the authority that he had, Moses had, in doing this, threw it at his feet, and with it said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She is not happy. She is angry about the fact that Moses had refused to take his responsibility in the home, and she is not happy at all that she had to take up that responsibility in the, in the, in the wake of the fact that he was incapacitated. Like a wonderful wife would always do, it says in verse 26, So he let him alone, meaning the Lord let Moses alone. Moses is now starting to get better and get on his feet. Everything's starting to feel better now. Things are doing well. Moses is up and going again. And it says, it was then after he got back on his feet. Because the wife's not going to kick you while you're down, is she? Husbands? No, of course not. She's going to wait for you to get better. And then once you get better and you're up on your feet and everything's going well, she waited until then and she said, a bridegroom of blood. You're a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So after he got better, she recommunicated this phrase. You're a bridegroom of blood. This phrase is odd and weird. It's hard to discern. The best way to understand this is that it was simply a, 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 a term of disgust for her to have to have done what Moses was responsible to do. And so she was not happy at all about this. And so she communicated this to Moses and let him know that. Moses was dismissing the authority that he had in his home to fulfill the covenant by performing the sign of circumcision to his son specifically. And he dismissed this and giving him the sign of the covenant of the God that they were supposed to be going into Egypt to declare as being a God of faith and a God that they trusted. Now, husbands and fathers... We are supposed to be responsible in our homes. We've got to take the leadership in our homes. Given the opportunity, every man in here is potential. Our, 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 our tendency is to be lazy and passive. And let everything else go. Give me the, the remote control in the recliner was invented for men and by men. And we are, according to the scriptures, according to Genesis, part of the fall is that men step back and are not active 
and that women want to, and women will, not because they're not, not able, but because they shouldn't, but that they will step into that position of leadership as happened here. I am not, hear this clearly, I'm not telling you men to get a club and to bark orders. That is not leadership. That is ungodly. However, too many of us have handed too much of the authority and the leadership in our home to either completely stepped away from it or have allowed our wives to assume too much of it. As a husband and as a dad, you and I have to say yes and no to very unpopular, not pleasant things. And it's hard. And you may be the only one in your home that likes you. And that just has to be the way it is sometimes. Because we have to make the decisions to lead. Because God has given you that authority. This isn't shame giving you that authority. God has placed you as the leader and the head in your home. You're to be firm. You're to be clear. You're to be loving. You're to be wise. But you've got to lead. You've got to stand up and have a backbone and understand that when your wife and your children push against something that you believe is godly, then you have to do it. And you may be wrong. You may be wrong in the sense that you may be thinking wrongly, but you have been given that authority to lead in that way. You must do this. You must lead your family to fear Christ, to follow God, to be obedient to God's standards. And it doesn't matter how little they are or how old they are. If they're in our home and under our authority, then we have been given the responsibility to lead. Let me give you some specifics as a husband and a father that may be helpful. First and foremost is that you dads need to be aware and know and be nurturing the spirituality of your family, your children and your wife. You need to be knowing what your wife is reading in her Bible and what God's teaching her. You need to be knowing what your children are reading and how they're being nourished in the faith. You need to be holding them accountable or they will not do it. Okay? You've got to be holding them accountable in their own personal devotions, but also in your family discipleship. Don't just pray for your children. Pray with your children. When they hear the Bible being read, allow it to be the sound of their daddy's voice in their head when they hear scriptures read because they've heard their daddy read so much to them that when they hear it read, it's daddy's voice that they hear. This is unusual to every generation, my generation specifically, but now we're in this new generation and I've got to add this in way of an understanding of not dismissing our authority. Dads, husbands, you need to be the one who knows what's going on in the devi- on the devices that your family are using. You need to know two things about these devices. You need to know how much time they're spending on what things, what applications that they're using, how much time they're spending on them, and you need to know the content of what they're using. That is not something you can say, well, you know, they make good decisions and they'll do this. You're allowing... The, the refuse of the entire world to be had by your children and by your wife. You guard them from so many other things. Trust me, you will never regret 
doing a little work, buying a couple of things that you need to buy, or doing what needs to be done, and, and I'll help you with this because I'm learning this. I, I know how much time my children and my wife spend on their devices and what things they're doing with their devices, and I know the content that's coming through there. To the best of my ability, they know that I love them enough to do that. Now, do they, they love and cherish that? Do they, they, with great joy, bring me their device every week and say, Dad, please monitor every... No. They despise it, and they think I'm treating them like they're two. It's either their discomfort or God Almighty that i got to stand before and be accountable for my children and for my wife in this regard. Be responsible to know, and it's hard. I'll say this, it's difficult to figure out these devices and what's taking place and how this, but make the effort and don't just dismiss it. Finally, now that I'm continuing on my rant, finally, make sure that your children are representing Christ by where they go, by how they live, and by their desire and their want to be in God's house. Your children and your wife will prioritize everything else other than church, and they'll encourage you that you're a legalist if you don't. Prioritize the church. Prioritize getting God's, your family into God's house. That is your responsibility. No one else in your home is going to lead in that. You have to. It's God's house. Now, just in case you might think Shane's on a rant and he's having a good time, and this is the application because it's 2016 and Shane just wanted to say this for so long, and so he's pulling it right out of this crazy passage that nobody will ever debate him on because who wants to debate circumcision, right? Let me read to you from a pastor by the name of A.W. Pink who wrote this in the 40s. Okay? He doesn't write anything about devices. But he does write this in the 40s about this passage. Listen. Nevertheless, it was Moses, the head of the house, the one God ever holds primarily responsible for the training and conduct of his children, and not Zipporah, whom the Lord sought to kill. This point, a most solemn warning to Christian fathers today. A man may be united to a woman who opposes him at every step as he desires to maintain scriptural discipline in his home, but this does not absolve him from doing his duty. Before God, <clears throat> before God suffered Moses to go and minister to Israel, he first required him to set his own house in order. If you're going to be faithful in any other calling that God has given to you, husbands and dads, know that it's this one that you've got to get in order first. I believe this passage speaks to this, and we can talk about the details of how I, Shane Waters, is struggling to be faithful in this in my own home, especially on the electronic devices world that I want to know less about, not more about, and I'm having to lean in and do this because God has called me to be a leader to know what's going on in my home. Point number four. Point number three was dismissed, authority dismissed. Point number four, authority affirmed. Authority affirmed. Let us notice, if you will, in verse 27 through 31, the glorious and wonderful fruit and byproduct of Moses' lessons on authority as he comes. So, 
what we find is that Moses and Aaron meet up. In verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And so Aaron and Moses now are united. Remember, the last time Moses and Aaron probably saw each other was 40 years ago. And they were much younger, 40 years younger. And and neither one of them knew that the other was still alive. And so somehow God sovereignly got got Aaron. I mean, he didn't send him an email and say, meet me at the mountain, right? Somehow God got Aaron to come to the mountain and Moses to come to the mountain and they met each other. So this is an amazing divine providence for them to meet. And Moses, verse 28, told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And so as soon as he tells Moses this, or Aaron this, Aaron spoke because that's what God told him to do. Aaron spoke all these words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And these are, these are the elders of Israel. He did these signs, Aaron did, and spoke these words. And it says in verse 31, the people believed. The people believed. All the concern that Moses had we have two chapters of Moses's all the reasons why Moses can't go and talk to the people because they won't believe in him. We have two chapters of complaining and grumbling and reasons and situations and circumstances that just absolutely the people of God will not believe me that I've been standing here on the side of a mountain talking to a burning bush and God was talking to me and saying to me that I need to deliver you. They will never believe it in a million years, Lord. And Moses gives all these complaints and all these reasons and all this grumbling all of, it was, all of it was ridiculous, unfounded, and faithless. As soon as Aaron saw Moses, he kissed him. He greeted him with great joy. As soon as they, it says here, that it's, I mean, it's almost like it's, a, it's, it's not even, it's a hiccup. And Aaron tells all the people the signs, tells them about God, and it says in verse 31, and the people believed. Period. That's how it worked. It's amazing. So too is all of our grumbling and all of our refusing and all of our belly aching about doing what God wants us to do and submitting to the authorities that God has given to us. All of it's ridiculous. It's unfounded. It's faithless. You and I both know that the real struggle when God asks us to do something isn't the possible obstacles the possible struggles, the possible pain and difficulties that might come. The real struggle comes down to this. Are we going to trust God and follow him or not? I mean, all of our belly aching and all of our complaining and all of our griping comes down to this. Are we going to trust God or not to do what God's called me to do? We can give all these other things, but at the end of the day, what we find in our passage is that they were unfounded. All the things that Moses was making up as reasons why he couldn't go and why it would never work, God changed. Why? Because he has authority. He has authority. Verse 31 is a glorious, right, and appropriate picture of of God's people submitting to the authority that God had given to them. Notice what it says in verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel... And that he had seen their affliction. 
they bowed their heads and worshipped. They were overwhelmed. They were amazed that their God had seen their affliction, that God had said he would visit with them and be with them. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, I tell you, with all the authority of Christ, that our Lord, our faithful covenant-keeping God, has visited us in Christ and has visited us this morning through his Holy Spirit. He has seen your affliction and the sorrow of your soul in sin. And he has said that he will deliver you. But you may say, and you may say rightly, I'm not delivered yet, Shane. I still carry this burden around with me. I still have to go to work tomorrow. I still have all these pains and struggles. Many of you are carrying incredible, deep sorrows in your own soul that every morning when you wake up, you are really wishing it was a bad dream. You've done that before. And it wasn't a bad dream. And you've got to swing your legs out of bed and you've got to go about the day again with all of the horror and struggle and agony and burden of your soul again today. You're saying, yes, I've... I know that Christ says he'll deliver me, but man, today I've got I've to live with this burden. Know this, brothers and sisters. God's people were not delivered yet either in this passage. They were still under their slavery. They were still making breaks, they, bricks. They were still doing what God says. God says they were, they were, their lives were bitter in hard service. They were still under the assumed authority of Egypt. And yet, notice what it says in the last phrase of verse 31. They bowed their heads in worship. Isn't it a glorious picture? To know that their faces were in the sand in Egypt. Worshiping their God whom they were hoping in to deliver them. In other words, their praise and their adoration and their hope began not when they started heading out of Egypt, but on that day when they heard that their God had visited them and that their God would deliver them. And they, put, they planted their faces in the sand of Egypt and said, Praise God, our deliverer has come. And just as surely, brothers and sisters, our Lord would deliver us from our heavy sorrow and shame of our sin and our guilt. Why will He deliver you and me? There's no good reason except for this fact. That by faith in Christ we are sons and daughters of God. It says in Galatians 3, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So brothers and sisters, let us, as we move from this text today, with our shoulders still burdened with the sorrow and struggle of the life that we have to live, we're getting ready to sing a song in praise and adoration and worship to our God, acknowledging that though we may carry these chains now, we will be one day fully and absolutely delivered. And we can praise Him here, right here, in the midst of this life that we're living. By faith, we're sons and daughters of God. Let us pray.